Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. This is the third part and the fourth part in our mini-series examining the rise of right-wing extremism in this country. Why is there a fourth part? Because my conversation with my guest today, Garrett Graff, was so compelling, I just couldn't stop asking him questions. I hope you'll enjoy. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Garrett Graff, author, historian, and the founding director of the Aspen Institute's Cyber Initiatives. Garrett's the publisher of the Substack newsletter, Doomsday Scenario, and host of the podcast, Long Shadow, now in its second season and available wherever fine podcasts are heard. He's also a contributor to Wired and CNN, has written for a multitude of publications, including Esquire, Rolling Stone, and The New York Times, and has edited Washingtonian and Politico magazine. As an author, he's written a number of books, including his latest, Watergate, A New History. Today, he's coming to us from Burlington, Vermont. Garrett, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Reed. So before we start talking about the other things, have you watched the White House Plumbers show on HBO? I actually have. I got to be the sort of resident historian on the companion podcast that HBO oh, really? did. So I... I'm the person that they call in to say after every episode, did that really happen? And the answer in almost all the cases is yes. And actually, it was even weirder at the time than they make it out to be. No, and you know, I know it's a little bit off topic, but as someone who was lucky enough to work in the executive office building, the EEOB, they did a pretty good job recreating that. And you can imagine being in those offices you know, with these guys. And, and as someone who grew up in the, in the Washington, D.C. area, I think Justin Thoreau does a pretty good job of mimicking G. Gordon's Liddy's very unique sort of affect and attitude towards things. That is, I think, what really comes through in The Plumbers is G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt are these two highly imaginative wackos who really have no business being anywhere close to the presidency and in any normal administration would have never gotten anywhere close to the presidency, but are really sort of acting out Richard Nixon's id uh, inside <laughs> the EEOB, you know, with shockingly little oversight from what is otherwise known as one of the best run and most organized White Houses of all time. Yeah. And look, you know, sometimes history maybe doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does echo. So let's talk about. You've had a podcast, The Long Shadow. It's now in its second season where you're focusing on the rise of right-wing extremism. And frankly, not just the rise of it, but the longevity of it, its origins, the different paths it's taken as we get here to 2023. If you haven't listened to it, folks who are watching and listening, please do so. Download it. Garrett does an exceptional job hosting it. It's also a very well-produced podcast, so you'll hear a lot. You'll be very immersed in it. So, Garrett, give us a little sense of why now that this was something you wanted to take on. You know, I'm a historian and journalist, 
spent you know 20 years covering the war on terror and the you know rise of dhs and the fight against al-qaeda and isis and all of these other foreign threats and then the thing that really stands out when you listen to national security leaders talk these days is the extent to which they think that the biggest threat facing America is now here at home and that it is the threat of right-wing extremism and specifically the rise and sort of mainstreaming of white supremacy and the globalization of white supremacy. And in fact, you know, we're talking here Monday, May 15th, this weekend, you know, Joe Biden at his commencement address at Howard University cited white supremacy as the most pressing threat against the country right now. And that's very consistent with what DHS has been saying, what the FBI has been saying, what other sort of national intelligence and national security leaders have said over the last four or five years. So my goal with this podcast was to try to take that threat and break it down and explain where it came from. You know, for all of us who were paying attention on January 6th, there was this sense that this attack came out of nowhere. I mean, sort of came out of nowhere in the same way that the attack on 9-11 came out of nowhere. But if you were paying attention, if you had seen the rise of al-Qaeda and the rise of Islamic extremism through the 1990s, 9-11 was in some ways an entirely predictable result of where that threat was growing. Which even a national intelligence estimate said that. Exactly. You know, you had that August 6th, 2001 PDB, you know, Osama bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States. And that this is, I think, the same story in some ways that we are living with January 6th, where you have had this threat that sort of corners of the U.S. government have been paying attention to on and off for many, many years, but not handling particularly well. And a big part of this podcast is also tracing the government's own failures, both in terms of prosecutions and sort of intelligence screw-ups along the way that ultimately help feed some of this threat as well. So that was the backdrop. And then, you know, this spring was the 30th anniversary of the siege at the Branch Davidian compound at Waco, Texas. So this sort of particular season of Long Shadow was tied to the date of April 19th, 1993, 30 years ago, last month, when there was the fiery end of the siege that ended up killing 76 Branch Davidians at the end of a 51-day siege, begun after a disastrous raid by the ATF that ended with the deaths of four ATF agents and the largest law enforcement shootout in American history, the largest gun battle on American soil since the Civil War. And that that Waco event really becomes the spark that inspires the modern far-right movement. And it is, of course, that anniversary, April 19th, that Timothy McVeigh then chooses to blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building two years later on April 19th, 1995. Well, and I, I would say we would also be remiss based on what you said about President Biden's remarks, that this weekend also marked the one-year anniversary of the Buffalo supermarket massacre as well. So 
there's just too much of this stuff, I think, going on for certainly decency's sake, but for anybody to feel good, I think, sometimes. But let's go back to the beginning. So, you know, race is a continuous thread in our politics going back to well before the founding, at the founding, at the Civil War, in the wake of the Civil War, you know, Reconstruction, the, the KKK pops up. I think Ulysses Grant spent a lot of his presidency trying to eradicate them. They come back 50 or 60 years later, right? Those statues of Robert E. Lee and those guys didn't pop up in 1868. They popped up in 1908 or sometime around there. And so we've seen this sort of an ebbing and flowing of this, the 50s with desegregation and the 60s with the civil rights movement. And now you get into the 1980s, right? And so much of this is centered in the Pacific Northwest or maybe the inland Northwest, Garrett, which is northern Idaho, Sandpoint. So take us, how do these folks in the 80s find one another? And I do want to spend some time on, you know, the government's actions and reactions to things, because I think that's an important piece of this. But tell us, what's the modern iteration? And a modern, I say, in the last, say, 40 years or so. Yeah. And that's really what the arc of the story that we try to tell is, is that modern story from beginning from the 1980s up to today. And a lot of it actually ends up being driven by waves of wars overseas. And you sort of see three cycles of this over the course of the story, the sort of origins of this modern far right movement in the wake of Vietnam and the disillusionment of returning veterans from that. Then, of course, Tim McVeigh, part of the era of returning Gulf War veterans, sort of disillusioned by that war, returning and susceptible to far right extremism. And then, of course, the modern era where you have a lot of this being traced back to the disillusionment of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And of course, I, w I want to be sort of clear that obviously that this is not in any way exclusively a movement of disillusioned veterans. There are, of course, lots of veterans who return, the vast majority of veterans, you know, return from war and, you know, serve honorably and return honorably to society here but that there is sort of a consistent thread of sort of these military experiences overseas helping to fuel resurgences of far-right extremism here at home as they come back. But many of those, like a McVeigh or someone else, they also become the targets of people who are trying to recruit for these things, right? Exactly. That's really where the sort of rub of this hits is that the sort of ideological leaders of this movement sort of latch on to returning veterans as sort of particularly good targets of opportunity because of their military training, because of their weapons training, and so forth. But what you see in the 1970s and the early 1980s as, as this modern movement comes together in the wake of Vietnam is that, as you said, white supremacy has always been a backdrop of American politics. What changes in the civil rights movement is that you see groups like the Ku Klux Klan that had long been basically extensions of the state, you know, sort of particularly in the South. Right. And I don't think we spend enough time on that, Garrett, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, high ranking KKK leaders in the South are, you know, local sheriffs and elected officials and governors. And that what happens in the wake of the civil rights movement is the KKK comes to see itself not as vigilantes sort of supporting the white supremacist governments, but as people who sort of hope to overthrow the U.S. government. 
and this begins to come together in the late 1970s and early 80s with groups like the Order and what's known as CSA, the Covenant, the Sword, and the the Arm of the Lord. These big white supremacies groups, again, as you said, largely centered around the Pacific Northwest and Oregon and Idaho. The Aryan Nations comes together, and they are inspired by this book, The Turner Diaries, which of course becomes an infamous book in the 1990s. You know, it was a key part of Tim McVeigh's radicalization and his extremism, but it was written under a pseudonym actually by a guy named William Pierce, who becomes one of the original sort of founders of this modern movement when he breaks off of the American Nazi party. So, you know, this, this is someone who's literally saying the Nazis aren't extreme enough for me. So I'm going to go off and form my even more extreme effort. And the Turner Diaries is this sort of dystopian, apocalyptic novel that's really a how-to manual of how right-wing extremists provoke a race war, overthrow the U.S. government, and then sort of found, you know, the all-white nation that they hope to achieve. And this becomes the backdrop against which you see groups like the Order and CSA and the Aryan Nations sort of come together and organize over the course of the 1980s, ultimately leading to, you know, a series of government crackdowns. And, you know, again, there are some parallels that will sound familiar to people with the modern day. A big trial in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where the leaders of the white power movement are charged with seditious conspiracy. Of course, the charge brought against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. So in the the podcast, we sort of try to tell the origins of these stories and how this history comes to influence, you know, that generation and then the follow-on generations and, you know, sort of introduce people to the roots of this modern movement. And so let's talk about the legal aspect of this first, which is there were times, and it might have been the CSA trial in Fort Smith, and I think maybe another one as well, where the government not only didn't prove its case, it did a terrible job trying to prove its case in a couple of these examples. And in one, you said that I think it was a weapons charge or weapons charges these guys were accused of. And they actually, the feds had to hand their weapons back to them as soon as the verdict was read. I mean, because now you sort of think about federal prosecutors, like if they're going to trial with you, it's because you have not been smart enough to take a deal with them, right? Because they're not going to try this unless they know they got you dead to rights. So what was the difference then as opposed to now? It's a really fascinating thread of this story for most of 40 years is that the U.S. government sort of decade after decade after decade screws up the prosecutions of almost every single meaningful right wing plotter and extremist. The Fort Smith, Arkansas trial was a uniquely dysfunctional circus. Two of the jurors actually have romantic relationships with the defendants, which I'm not a jury expert, but I believe that that's the type of thing that's frowned upon normally while the trial is going on. (laughs) And the leaders of these three groups, the Order, the CSA, and the Aryan Nations are all fully acquitted by an all-white jury in Arkansas amid this sort of disastrous series of prosecutions. And as you said, at the end of it, the U.S. government, which thought that this was going to be 
the trial that breaks the back of the white power movement in America and sentences all of their leaders to decades in prison ends up actually having to give them all their guns back at the end of it. And that this sadly becomes part of the drumbeat of how these cases unfold. And, you know, sort of episode after episode, we look at how the U.S. government takes swings at this threat over and over and keeps missing. And, you know, was it the order or the Aryan nations where they're knocking over banks and armored cars, you know, in things that are reminiscent of, you know, heat or Hollywood movies where, you know, they're on a lonely stretch of highway in central California or something. And, you know, they say, you know, you guys can leave or, you know, you guys can die. And, you know, so there was a crime spree with some of these folks, I assume, to finance the operations. But violence, in addition to the white supremacy, they go hand in hand with these guys. And I guess a willingness to use that violence. Not just a willingness to use the violence, but violence is sort of a key part of the goal here. If the violence is how they expect that they are going to be able to provoke the race war that is necessary to overthrow the U.S. government and do away with the Jews and the blacks. And so the order, as, as you mentioned, is responsible for in the 1980s for the largest open road robbery in American history. They knock over a Brinks truck in California for over $3 million in cash. They rob a variety of other stores and banks. They assassinate a Denver talk radio host who, you know, sort of called them out for their anti-Semitism. And they really hoped that this violence was the start of revolution. And this becomes a key part of the mission and the dream of the Turner Diaries. But it's also where we see someone like Tim McVeigh get the idea to blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building. Right. So let's talk about the things that if you're a student of American history and certainly of domestic political history, there's Ruby Ridge and Randy Weaver and his family. Obviously, you mentioned Waco and, and Waco has a little bit of personal resonance for me because I think, as I've noted on the show before, Garrett, I was a junior in high school when that went down in Dallas. And I remember sitting in my room on the phone with a buddy of mine and video comes on Channel 21 on the TV and you see this. And I don't think it was live. I think they beam the, the footage in, but you see, you know, ATF agents climbing ladders and then you see bullets flying out and one guy roll off the roof. And I'm like, what is going on here? Fast forward to April 19th. They roll televisions into our classrooms, Garrett, as this happens. And a bunch of 17 year olds in Spanish class watch this thing burn to the ground. It was bananas. But I bring those two things up because it was something you mentioned at the beginning, which was Randy Weaver. You know, they sent basically a plant in because they were trying to get him out of his hidey hole in you know the middle of nowhere. You know, they're going to get him on charges of sawing off a shotgun. They send marshals out to get him. They end up killing his kid and his dog. And his wife. And his wife. But the young man, his son, was armed and shot at them. So I don't want to make it seem like they're just out there killing kids and dogs. But then they call in the FBI. But the FBI special, you know, the hostage rescue team or whatever out of Quantico believes that this is an ongoing firefight. Right. And they get there and it's not. The ATF in Waco needs a big score. They need a big thing, a big flashy thing, because they don't want to be the little brother to the FBI anymore. And it becomes, you know, this debacle, I think we can all agree, 30 years on. So what was going on with federal law enforcement 
30 years ago where this stuff was so poorly either planned or handled as it was going down? It's a great question. And it, you know, I think it says a lot about the attention that federal law enforcement had to this as a threat along the way. And it has a lot to say about how, in many ways, the government sort of worst enemy in far right extremism is often the government, that it is the government sort of missteps and miscalculations along the way that provide real fodder for this movement's growth and the rise of the militia movement through the 1990s. I think one of the things that we misunderstand that we try to correct in the podcast is thinking of these militia groups, right-wing militia groups, as benevolent patriots against the government. And it's actually a very conscious decision by the leaders of the white power movement in the early 1990s that are basically like, you know, if we take all of the stuff that we believe and sort of downplay the naked white supremacy of it all, we can attract a wider set of adherence to our beliefs. And so you end up sort of wrapping up these people like Randy Weaver, who's like sort of a white supremacist, but not a real virulent one. But he, you know, he sort of goes to some of the Aryan Nation gatherings in Northwest Idaho. And then basically the ATF tries to get him as an informant doesn't work. They hit him with a gun charge. He then sort of retreats to his mountain cabin. And, you know, the government is sort of stuck with this case that, like, they don't actually really care about at all. You know, Randy Weaver really means nothing to them. But you can't defy the federal government forever. And so, you know, the U.S. Marshals sort of start trying to get him down off the mountain. They arrest him at one point then, you know, send him to court, then he doesn't show up for his court date, and they're sort of stuck dealing with this guy again. And, you know, it spirals, as you say, into this really poorly handled shootout and siege on Ruby Ridge a year before the Waco siege, which is also terribly poorly handled. And these things are, you know, all end up creating this narrative of the government coming after people's guns, the government coming after people for their religion. So they sort of swap the narrative to, we want to overthrow the government to, why won't the government just leave us alone? Yes. And you see then in the wake of the Waco siege, the passage of the assault weapons ban, which is one of those things that is sort of long forgotten by most of America, but very much remembered by, you know, gun rights activists. And it really seems like this is the worst case scenario. This is the tyrannical U.S. government coming to kill women and children and religious activists and take away the guns of law-abiding citizens. And it sparks together this movement of the far-right militias in the 1990s that really helps radicalize people like Tim McVeigh and ultimately leads to the Oklahoma City federal bombing. and. One of the things that we really try to tell is this story with Tim McVeigh is that, you know, for almost 30 years now, 
America sort of has this lie that we tell ourselves about Tim McVeigh, that he was a lone wolf, that, you know, he carried out this, you know, deadliest bombing on U.S. soil up until that moment, that's still the deadliest bombing by a domestic extremist. And he sort of did it totally by himself with the help of an army buddy, Terry Nichols, and a third guy, Michael Fortier. And that's not really true. When you dive into Tim McVeigh, what you see is that he comes right out of this right-wing extremist movement. He's a believer in the Turner Diaries. He is traveling around to gun shows in the years before the bombing, selling copies of the Turner Diaries, selling anti-government t-shirts and bumper stickers, that he actually goes to Waco to the siege to, you know, sort of see up close firsthand the tyrannical government punishing the Branch Davidians, and that he's actually, you know, a relatively active member of the far-right extremist movement right up until that moment when he drives into Oklahoma City wearing a t-shirt that he made for himself that day that says, Six Semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants. The motto, of course, that John Wilkes Booth shouts as he shoots Abraham Lincoln. So you've mentioned several times about the overthrow of the government, of the federal government, the United States federal government, and this idea of this sort of white Christian nationalist you know, white supremacist sort of paradise, I guess. But, you know, these don't seem to be the types that are capable of that. So are they necessarily living in a fantasy land that has these continual, very violent interactions with reality? I think that's accurate. You know, they see themselves as people trying to spark a revolution and that they are the heroes of their own story and they really think that these moments, these actions are what is going to spark that sort of final race war that brings down the federal government and leads to what it, at the end of the, the Turner Diaries is known as the Day of the Rope, which is this mass execution by the winners, by the newly installed white government, white power movement at the end of the Turner Diaries of journalists and Jews and blacks and minorities and sort of everyone that they see as, as what they call a race traitor. And that this Turner Diary narrative is one that is incredibly powerful. And it's one that you really see I think actually even the echoes of on January 6th itself. I mean, it's not a coincidence that you've got people building a gallows on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol screaming, hang Mike Pence. I mean, this is the moment that in many ways the Turner Diaries tries to build towards. So before we get to January 6th, let's talk a little bit about Clive and Bundy. And a lot of this occurs in the West, right? If you live in the West, as I do, a lot of it's vastly empty. You know, a lot of places from New Mexico north to Montana, Wyoming, right? Most of the places you might live are pretty inhospitable. And so in the old days, you really had to want to be there, right? You had to want to be here. There's also the sort of manifest destiny of go West young man and everything else and this sort of freedom and fresh air and mountains. But Clive and Bundy and his clan in Nevada they're basically, you know, having their cattle out grazing on federal land. They're not paying their fees or whatever it is. 
and it leads to the standoff. I think it was in 2014, correct me if I'm wrong, Garrett. But now you have the flip, which is it's 180 degrees away from Ruby Ridge or Waco, which is, you know, the feds are going to come, they're going to herd up his cattle, and then there's going to be a standoff. But the last thing any of us are going to do on the federal side is pull a trigger. Yes. You know, a lot of this story takes place in the West. And some of that has to do with, as you said, the manifest destiny of the sense of and spirit of the American West. And some of this is also the story of how the relationship with the federal government is also just so different out West. You know, the fifth episode of this season, as you talk about, is all about the Bundys and sort of this modern Western land rights, grazing rights showdown where you have the BLM, this agency that, you know, most people in the East in the United States pay almost no attention to whatsoever, the Bureau of Land Management, but that out West is the holder of one eighth of the entire country. And knowing a BLM agent is not an unusual thing. Right. And that in, you know, Nevada, in, in Utah, in Idaho, more than half of the entire state is actually owned by the federal government, overseen by, you know, the Park Service, the Forest Service, and the BLM. And that, you know, you sort of have a much more sort of in your face contact with the federal government. You know, for Western ranchers, this is a daily interaction with them. And so for Clive and Bundy, this rancher in Nevada, he is in this sort of decades-long showdown with the BLM over grazing rights. And it gets to sort of all of the sense of, you know, sort of Gadsden flag, don't tread on me, America of, you know, who are you to tell me where I can and cannot graze my cattle? And a lot of these really complex trade-offs with the Endangered Species Act and, you know, local development rights and, you know, all of these weird stories that seem very abstract when you're reading about them in, you know, the New York Times and our very lived experiences for people out West. And that he ends up in this showdown in 2014 with the BLM and, you know, the tyrannical Obama government. I mean, we sort of forget how much of this movement really sort of changed and was turbocharged by the election of a black president in 2008. And can you just spend a little bit more time on that? Because I think that's one thing that certainly, you know, until listening to you and, and doing all the reading I have now done in the last two or three years. And again, as someone who was, you know, look, I worked for John McCain. You know, did I think that Obama should be president? I don't know. Frankly, it doesn't matter now. I knew he was going to be president. But me personally, Garrett, like I never went to bed at night saying, well, you know, I'm a Republican, he's a Democrat, but like I didn't worry about the country. Does that make sense? Like I didn't go to bed at night going, oh God, what's Obama going to do next? But for so many of these folks, the very fact that he was the first black president was just a bridge too far for them. Yes. And you see this immediate resurgence of white supremacy, white power groups, you know, huge uptick in the resurgence of militias across the country. And some of that has to do with this like very weird moment that you and I, when we were in Washington in the early 2000s, sort of didn't realize we were really living through in the time, but that right-wing extremism sort of largely goes away for the early 2000s. You have a Republican president in office and you have this unified enemy overseas. 
you know, Al-Qaeda, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, it seemed like sort of for the first time in 20, 30 years that the right wing and the government were on the same side fighting the same enemy. There was a lot of dark stuff going on right then, you know, a lot of Islamophobia in the United States. Like, I don't want to gloss over that, but you didn't see this sort of active right-wing militia movement in the way that sort of immediately pops back up with Barack Obama. But would you say that they, they disbanded or was it more that they went underground like cicadas? I think both, because some of it is, you know, a lot of these groups are not sort of formal in the way that, you know, you're mustering people in and out of a regiment. You know, these are groups that sort of have a sort of amorphous membership on their sort of best day. Right. And they all live on literally and figuratively on the fringes of society. So there's a good chance that somebody's always getting picked up for a warrant or for cooking meth or something else. Right. So people are coming and going all the time. And you have this other thing that really turbocharges in the early 2000s and particularly around the election of President Obama, which is right-wing talk radio and right-wing media, specifically Fox News. You know, we are sort of so used to, in 2023, thinking of Fox News as a scourge on our democracy that we sort of forget that that's actually a relatively recent invention, that Fox in the 1990s, after it's originally founded, like, yeah, it's right-wing, but, like, it's not crazy. You know, it's not Tucker Carlson out there, you know, spewing white supremacy on a nightly basis. No, I mean, it was fair and balanced, right? It was it was all of that. I mean, you think about it, it was Hannity and Colmes, right? Like, I mean, they, they had a Democrat. My dad was on TV most weekends with a guy named Bob Beckel, who was a longtime Democratic analyst. And they were asked generally straight questions about American politics. And they did like entertainment coverage and travel coverage. Like it was sort of like more the like headline news version of CNN rather than the conservative talk radio. And then you have sort of real polarization begin to come into place in those 2000s in ways that are big and small, right? Like we're so used to thinking of the country today in terms of red states and blue states. That really only arrives in the 2000 election. You know, before the 2000 election, America didn't have red states and blue states in the way that we think of it. There were some states that were more Republican than others. There were some states that were more Democratic than others. But we didn't call them red states and blue states. And it wasn't a means of self-identification either. Exactly. Where that actually comes from is the 2000 election. That actually election to election up until 2000 different channels and different networks changed back and forth, whether blue represents Democrats or red represents Republicans. In 1996, it was actually blue was the color for Republicans and red was the color for Democrats. But in 2000, the paralysis of the Florida vote means that America gets used to looking at those electoral charts in the daily newspapers and on the cable channel sort of day after day after day for weeks at a time. And we sort of begin to sort of look at the country in terms of red and blue in a way that we did not before 2000. And then over the course of the rest of that decade, 
you see sort of the radicalization of Fox News, the radicalization of conservative talk radio, sort of the spread of this new insidious conspiracism with talk radio hosts like Glenn Beck and Alex Jones. But let's go back even further than that. Remind me the guy's name in Arizona, who's like broadcasting over shortwave radio, because he seems to be sort of like the godfather of all of this. Yes, Bill Cooper. This was one of my favorite parts of this whole season. Episode four, we spend looking at the rise of conservative media and specifically the rise of Bill Cooper. And uh, I will sort of shift slightly to say my next book comes out in November and it's a history of the U.S. government's hunt for UFOs. <laughs> sort of the real weird stuff that happened over the last 75 years with UFOs. Bill Cooper is this ex-Navy intelligence officer who comes out of the UFO conspiracy theory world and becomes one of the leading UFO conspiracists of the 1980s and then reinvents himself in the 1990s as a talk radio host. And he ends up with one very specific protege a guy named Alex Jones, the voice of Austin Public Access. And where does Alex Jones get his start? Well, actually, it's in the ashes of Waco, Texas. Sort of the first big thing that Alex Jones does is he raises the money to rebuild the church at the site of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. And this becomes sort of his big national breakout moment. And he then, you know, sort of goes sort of ever more deeper into conspiracy theories, is sort of a key figure in the Y2K conspiracy movement, which is where sort of he and Bill Cooper really have their falling out. Right, which, which is an interesting part of episode four, Garrett, because... It comes to a point where when you, you have some clips that you play of this guy, Bill Cooper, who is kooky as all get out. And then at some point he decides that Alex Jones is too kooky even for him. Yes, because the thing that is sort of fascinating about this ideological split is that Bill Cooper doesn't think he himself is a liar, whereas he sort of sees Alex Jones as an actual liar. And for him, like, that's a bridge too far. You know, you get this great platform, you know, all of these listeners, and you can't lie to them. You got to tell the truth. And he ends up, you know, having this sort of vicious split with Alex Jones in the wake of Y2K. And then, spoiler alert, but this happened 21 years ago, so it's not that much of a spoiler alert, ends up dying shortly after 9-11 in a shootout with police in Arizona as he, Bill Cooper, sort of gets ever kookier and crazier. And then Alex Jones, his career sort of takes off after 9-11 like a rocket. And that he becomes such a key voice in this movement and the radicalization and, you know, the sort of spread of these pernicious conspiracies up to and including, of course, birtherism, which, you know, circling back to Obama, you know, becomes sort of a key part of how the right sort of loses its mind with the election of Barack Obama. And Donald Trump and the birth certificate. and Exactly. And that you sort of begin to see, again, all of these threads 
coming together, threads that sort of start in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, sort of weaving themselves together in the 2000s and resulting eventually in the Bundy standoff, which is sort of where we were starting this question in 2014. And the Bundys become this incredible moment where the federal government moves in to take the cattle off federal land, taxpayer land, that the Bundys have been grazing on without paying their grazing fees. And the Bundys put out a call for militias to come and a whole lot of militias show up. People like the Oath Keepers, you know, people like Stuart Rhodes. And they end up in this showdown with the BLM and eventually the BLM backs down and yada, yada, yada. A couple of years pass. There are two other showdowns that this moment sort of helps inspire. One at the Sugar Pine Mine in Oregon, then the Bundys for sort of other reasons, which I encourage you to listen to the podcast and get all of this. They end up seizing a national wildlife refuge outside Bend, Oregon, and, you know, lead what is by sort of any other account an armed takeover of federal property, and you know, which again, they escape from. And again, the government screws up the prosecution and the Bundys end up leading two armed standoffs against the federal government in 2014 and 2016 that are successful. And it ends up, I think, being, you know, you look at January 6th and you see the roots of that really taking hold in these armed standoffs out west where people get the idea that you can stand up to the federal government and you can win. So everybody, for those of you listening, we're going to leave it here today. This concludes the first part of my conversation with Garrett Graff. Until next time, you can follow Garrett on Twitter at VermontGMG. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time for the conclusion of our conversation with Garrett Graff. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.